wish that every day was like this day. It's so pretty out there. Uh, but it's good to have you. You're a beautiful sight. We've already had two great services with John Collier. And I know the Lord's going to move and touch in, in this one as well. And I get to stand up here and announce somebody and sit down and not sweat. <laughs> Amen? And so that's a great, great feeling. I, uh, I wasn't here in the first two services. We, um, I, I went to preside over the funeral of my longtime spiritual father who uh, passed away. It's hard to be sad because he was a hundred. I mean, he was a centenarian. So he was healthy, strong, and I've known him and walked with him since 1972 before some of you were even uh, a glisten in your parents' eyes. And um, so we did the funeral. It was a joyous occasion. Uh, We celebrated his life, but I was way in East Texas, and so I was so glad that John was here already, and I could just turn over all the services to him, and he's done a great job. John Collier is pastor of Gateway Church in England. Now, it's not connected to Gateway here. He thought of it before they did. Is that right? (laughs) We don't want to lie in church. It was kind of a nip and tuck, but anyway. But I've been there and and preached for him, and I'm sure I'll go back sometime. We love England, and uh, it's a great church, and God has just opened many doors for him. He is now on TBN throughout the United Kingdom, and he recently brought a message that was viewed by over 3 million people. Isn't that something? That's something. That's powerful. So without any further ado, I want you to give John Collier a great big turning point welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. How you doing? It's good to see you. Is it good to see me? Good. I'm really glad you're here. It's a privilege to be back at Turning Point. Pastor Jeff and Cindy, thank you so much for opening your hearts and friendship and church to me. And uh, it's really, really nice to be here. There's a few less hats in this service. I was saying, kind of makes me chuckle. You go to our church, you'll see um, turbans and hajibs and all that kind of stuff. Come here, and it's just cowboy hats everywhere. And I just keep thinking, Walker, Texas Ranger is going to come in any minute now. And I suppose it's not funny to you because it's normal, but to everybody else, it's, it's funny. So, and you talk a little strange, but I love you. I do. I love you anyway, and the Lord loves you. So it's so nice to be in Texas. I lived in East Texas for five years, and so it just, it's like home away from home. So anyways, go ahead. Take your seats, if you would, for a few minutes. Um, I wasn't 100% sure I was going to get here. I flew in on Thursday and was already going to be arriving quite late, but there was, I flew into Atlanta from London, and then evidently there was a storm in between Atlanta and Dallas. So the flight that was supposed to leave at 9.30 on Thursday night, which already felt like 3.30 in the morning to me with the time difference, ended up not leaving until 2.15 in the morning, which is brutal. And so I landed in Dallas about 3.30 Friday morning, and then I had to get to the rental car station, but there's not really many shuttle buses that run at 3.30 in the morning, so that was slow. And I got to the rental car counter, and the guy was obviously bored out of his tree because it's, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning. So he was, just, he was just chatting away and was asking me all about England. And, you know, you're trying to be polite because you're a foreigner and you don't want to be rude. But I'm thinking, right now, I don't care about the queen or anybody else. 
And then, so I drive Leary out to my hotel, get there. Receptionist had the same syndrome as the guy at the thing. She was bored. So she's talking all about stuff and she'd been to England. So it's getting worse. She wanted to know if I knew Bob and I didn't, and I didn't care to know Bob. So anyways, got to my bed about five, four thirty, but I, I was feeling a little bit grumbling. I thought, you know what? Actually, I've got nothing to complain about. The most important thing about air travel is that you get there. And so we can handle late. So anyways, I'm glad to be here. I didn't feel human on Friday, but today I am on fire. I mean, it's just God's word is like fire shot up in my bones. So I'm really excited to share something with you. And I want to talk with you today about the power of the blood. But let me sort of tell you what brought me to this to this message today and talking about it. Before I do, you know, whenever you travel and speak somewhere, I always say you like an arrow that's fired, but there's a bow that fires you. So the bow that fires me primarily is my wife, Angela, and she did ask me to say hello. We've been married for 22 years. I love her as much now as I did when I met her all those years ago at Tulsa Airport, believe it or not. And then we have a son named Levi. He's 15. Frighteningly, he just enrolled for college last week. We, we graduate high school at 16. And I always say, it's not that we're cleverer than you. We just get there quicker. So I don't know. But we start college at 16. And anyway, so he's a mini-me, frighteningly so. And so anyways, they're, they're the bow that fires me. I've left them at home. Looking forward to seeing them again when I go back on Thursday. So, But what kind of has brought me to this message I want to share with you today about the blood. And, and it is a fire in my bones. Is As Pastor mentioned, I've, I've been recording a TV program that's on TBN UK. And what I do is one week I teach, and then the next week sit down. We kind of, to use their jargon, we unpack the message. So I sit and talk with someone. We just kind of, you know, she asks questions about the message and some things I was talking about. And then the next week I teach, and then the next week we unpack it. And that's kind of the format of it. And so we were sitting around with a group of people after one of the sessions. And, and someone said to me, and let me just say, it wasn't a TBN employee at all. But someone said, you know, John, you, you know, you kind of talk about the blood quite a lot. And she said, that's it. It almost makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. She said, in our church, we've kind of, we don't really talk about the blood so much. We sort of backed off a little bit because we don't, you know, we don't want to upset anybody. And, it, you know, a lot of people kind of feel squeamish about it. She said, do you, do you think it's a good idea to talk about the blood in, you know, in this? And I, I didn't tell her everything I was thinking, but I did say, look, I said, with respect, it's my program. So we're going to talk about what I want to talk about. But number two is, I said, you can't take the blood out of Christianity. You can't do that. If you take the blood out of Christianity, you, you, you take the, the Bible says the life is in the blood. And the thing that makes Christianity so powerful is the blood. In fact, I had the privilege a few weeks ago of leading a guy to the Lord in my office. And he was, he grew up in the Sikh religion. So there's four major world religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and then Sikhism, which is less known here in the United States, but it's the fourth largest religion. And it comes out of India. And in the area that where we live, Pastor Jeff and Cindy have seen it. There's a lot of big temples. Many of them are Sikh temples. So this guy had grown up as a Sikh, although he was British born. And so we were talking and he said, you know, I'm just curious about the, you know, the religion of Christianity. And I said, well, I said, I understand completely. I said, but really as Christians, we don't, we don't think of Christianity as a religion. I said, I understand in context, it is a world religion. I said, let me explain the difference. I said, religion says, if I do certain things, pray five times pointing in a certain direction, or if I go to the temple enough times, or if I give enough, and then, then God will be pleased, and that will earn a, a measure of blessing. Christianity recognizes that there's nothing I can do to please God. And in fact, to fix that, to remedy that problem, God sent His Son. And so Jesus reached out from heaven to earth. And so Christianity is not a religion. It's actually technically, it's a faith. 
Because I say Christianity is based on the fact I believe that what Jesus did is enough for me. So my relationship with God isn't based on what I have done. It's based on what Jesus has done and my faith, my belief in Jesus. So I said, in reality, I said, it all comes down the most important, the the defining question any man, any woman will ever ask is, what am I going to do about Jesus of Nazareth? Do I believe that? And I said to this lady in this discussion over lunch between a couple of my TV programs, I said, you cannot take the blood out of Christianity. So that kind of, that was one leg that, that carried me to this message today. The other one is this. We have just begun in England election, election season. They announced it last week. And our election season, mercifully, only lasts six weeks. You guys is last six, is it, is it six years? It feels like it. I don't think it is, but certainly longer than six weeks. And so the prime minister who currently is Boris Johnson, he stands up there and he delivers his election manifesto. This is what we're going to do. And some of the, some of the great things he's announced, they want to put 20,000 more police officers on the streets. They want to put, you know, five billion into the NHS, the National Health Service. They're going to build all these new schools. They're going to do this thing for senior citizens and, and, and announce all these massive great spending measures. So he makes this announcement, sits down. And then the guy on the other side of parliament stands up and usually starts with a question. And can you guess what the question is when the leader of the opposition announces all these great spending measures? What's the question? How are you going to pay for it? And I've been preaching a series the last month or so in my church called Freedom. And it's based out of the verse that says, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And over the last number of weeks, I've made some very big, bold statements. I said this, forgiveness isn't truly forgiveness if it's not total. If there's a but to it, if there's a however, it's not actually forgiveness. And I said this the next week, I said, the moment we add to what Christ has done, we actually take away from what he's done. And I was thinking about that the next day. I preached on the Sunday and I was still buzzing about it and excited just about what God had been speaking in my own heart. When the thought struck me, that's very true. Forgiveness is complete and you can't add anything to what Jesus has done. But who pays for this? This mercy, this grace, this forgiveness that you and I experience, this freedom in Christ Jesus, which has made me free from the law of sin and death. It's great. It's wonderful. It's sweeping. But who pays for it? And of course, the simple answer is Jesus. But I want to unpack that a little bit more today and talk about this. I want to look at what happened on the day of Passover all those thousands of years ago when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. So turn, if you will, please, to Exodus chapter 12. And let's read some of this together. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And it says this in verse 21. It says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel together and said to them, Go pick out a lamb or young goat for each of your families and slaughter the Passover animal. Drain the blood into a basin. Then take a bundle of hyssop branches and dip it into the blood. Brush the hyssop across the top and the sides of the door frames of your houses. And no one may go out through the door until the morning. For the Lord will pass through the land to strike down the Egyptians. Let me interject here and say this. Egypt represents sin. Egyptians represent sin. When they were living in Egypt, it represents what life was like in sin. And so the reason they were there, as I'm sure you're very familiar with the account, is that Joseph, who was Jacob's son, had been sold by his brothers into slavery, thrown in a pit, and then sold for a little bit of money. And then over the course of the next, however many it was, 14, 15 years, thereabouts, he had gone from the 
pit and the prison and Potiphar's house. And then, I mean, just all these, all these situations he was in. And finally, he finds himself in prison. And at that time, Pharaoh has a dream and he sees seven cows eating, seven fat cows eating seven skinny cows and then seven lots of wheat eating seven other pieces of wheat. And he knows this is a significant dream because it's recurring, but he has no idea what it means. And one of the guys that worked for him, I forget whether it's the baker or the butcher or the whoever it was, the candlestick maker, one of them said, there's this guy in prison. His name's Joseph. He can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh said, well, go get him. And so Joseph comes out and says, well, this is what your dream means. It means you're going to have seven years of, of abundance, but it's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And if you don't prepare properly, the famine years will eat up the abundant years. And so he said, what you need to do is put a certain portion aside and prepare it and store it. And, and so Pharaoh says, well, you do it. And so in a matter of hours, Joseph went from the prison to the palace. My friend, never think that God can't change your circumstances. And that he can't do it in a moment. He, he is the savior. He really is the redeemer. And so Joseph oversees the seven years of abundance and stores up, you know, a huge great percentage of the, of the food. And then the seven years of famine come in and they're all eating fine. The other nations are starving and trot, trot, trot along come his brothers. And so they've been sent by Jacob to see if they could, you know, buy some food. They had money, but they had no food. And so Long stories of event, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, shows them who he is. They forgive each other. And then Jacob and all his sons move into Egypt. And for the first 30 years, it's fine. And But then Joseph dies and Pharaoh dies. And a new Pharaoh rose up that didn't know Joseph and didn't know his God. And saw that the Israelites were expanding and increasing and said, we're going to put them into slavery because we're afraid of them. And so they turned the Israelites into slaves and oppressed them and suppressed them and made them do all their work. And so the children of Israel actually then had 400 years of of bondage and slavery. So they were in Egypt a total of 430 years. And during this time, they had a distinction from all the people on the face of the earth that they served an invisible God. And when I was a kid, I never thought that was very exciting. In fact, every time we sung songs about the invisible God, I would change it to invincible. Because to me, that was, you know, far more exciting than the fact God's invisible. But in reality, every other person that worshipped any kind of God, worshipped a God that they could see. The sun, the moon, a tree, an image that they'd created. But the children of Israel worshipped an invisible God, which is staggering and wonderful, but yet tricky when you're in slavery for 400 years. There was no sermons, no songs, no prophecies. No New Hillsong CD, no Christian concerts. There was nothing for 400 years. And so in reality, their faith in God was just a, a thread. I mean, it was a God that their grandparents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-grandparents told about. They'd never seen this God for themselves. There'd be no word, no prophecy. Reinhard Bonnke hadn't visited. Benny Hinn was nowhere to be seen. Billy Graham was unknown. I mean, they, and then along comes Moses. And says, I was just out in the wilderness and this bush was burning, but was unconsumed. And I heard God say, go into, is, into Egypt and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And so Pharaoh is unconvinced and God sends a number of plagues. And then finally the 10th plague comes. And this was the most devastating and most destructive plague at all. It was a plague which was to affect everyone. And it was the plague of death. And this destroyer was going to come through the land and would kill the firstborn male, human or animal. The Bible says all the way from Potiphar, from the palace, Pharaoh's house, all the way down to the keeper of the dungeon, which was about the lowest position you can get. It 
didn't discriminate against anybody. Israelite, Egyptian, even animals. And this plague represented the spiritual death which comes to all who are living in sin. And so the children of Israel were without hope. They didn't, couldn't rely on their great Christianity or their great prayer life or their great anything. There was nothing. In many ways, they weren't that different to the Egyptians that they were serving in terms of moral compass. But Moses had a message from the Lord and the Lord told them this. He said, every home, take a lamb. And if you take this lamb and you sacrifice the lamb, you need to spill the blood and collect the blood and then cook and eat the meat. You, you had to, that lamb had to get in you. They said, take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood and apply the blood to the doorposts and the crossbeam of the house. And God said this, every home where I see the blood, I won't permit the destroyer to touch you. But if I don't see the blood, in effect, you're on your own. And so the Passover represented the physical death or in physical form, excuse me, the spiritual death that comes to everyone. A plague so powerful that the firstborn of every male, regardless of status, ethnicity, goodness, or badness, would die. And there was only one solution, only one salvation, only one hope. You had to be under the blood. That literally was your only. And so the people, both Hebrew and Egyptian, that were under the blood, weren't necessarily any better than the guy next door. Again, as I said, they couldn't rely on their virtue. They didn't really have any. They hadn't been to more prayer meetings and the Israelites at that time were largely godless. They were completely separate, without God, without hope. Their lives were largely without meaning, without value, without purpose. They lived a lifetime in bondage and slavery and now was coming a destroyer, a destroyer that comes to every man, every woman and it's death. And their only hope was if they were under the blood. They knew they weren't deserving of mercy. They knew they were powerless to escape this. They knew they hadn't done anything except eat the body of the lamb and apply its blood to their house. It wasn't even their blood. Maybe you'd have more confidence if you think, well, I sacrificed something for this. You know, there's a pound of my flesh in that. It's, it's my blood I put on the door. It wasn't even their blood. It wasn't their sacrifice. Their only chance, their only hope, and all their faith rested on the blood of that lamb. Now we remember or recount this story. We know it well. We kind of know the end from the beginning. And so it loses a little bit of its power and its familiarity. But if you think about it for a moment, I have a son. His name is Levi. Told you about him a moment ago. He's my only son. So therefore by default, he's my firstborn. I'm not the firstborn son. So I'd have been okay. But could you imagine as that plague began to come through, that destroyer started to, to get closer. Could you imagine the fact the Bible says that Pharaoh was awakened by the wails of the people. And he lived in a big palace. The, the Israelites lived in, in wooden shacks. I mean, there was no glamour to their home. There was no soundproofing. Could you imagine as the cries and the screams and the anguish got closer? I'd tell you what I would do. I would grab Levi as tight as I could. I grabbed, a, I grabbed a kid in first service and I started to squeeze him. I said, you know, you would hold on to that child as tightly as you possibly could. Living with the reality that there's nothing I can do to save you, son. I, I would give my life if I could, but I have no virtue. I can't look to my past. It doesn't matter what I've given or haven't given. It doesn't matter if I was a good slave or a bad slave, a good human or a bad human. There's, I can't bargain with God. I am... All I can do is hold you as tight as I can and pray and beg and plead and hope that the blood of that lamb 
is enough to save your life. In reality, I wouldn't care about anything else. I wouldn't be checking my 401k. I wouldn't worry if I'd put enough air in the tires or petrol in the car. Nothing would matter except, is that blood enough? Could you imagine as that plague came right over, the the angel of death, it was a, a force that moved through the land. It was over your head. I mean, you would be trembling. But But the elation... As that plague moved on and you realize my son is alive. I mean, just imagine for a moment the emotion you'd have attached to that and the, and the, the gratitude. You wouldn't step back and slap your son on the back and say, who's your daddy? <laughs> Took care of you, didn't I? Oh, the arrogance. You wouldn't do that for a moment. You'd know I had no virtue to save you. This had nothing to do with me, son. You wouldn't. You wouldn't dance on the Xbox and think, woo can play a bit more of that. You wouldn't check the app on your phone and make sure your bank balance was still where it needed to be. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do any of that. In reality, all you would do is you would fall on your knees and kiss the ground that the blood had dripped onto. Is the blood enough? And they found out that day, yes, the blood of Jesus is enough. To save an unregenerate, degenerate, unworthy, undeserving person who's no better than the guy next door, but he's under the blood. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. It says, but Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. My friend, you've got to understand everything that lamb was to those Israelites in Egypt. Jesus Christ is to us. I have no redeeming virtue. I, I can't look to my past and say, oh God, spare me because I've done good. I can't look to the future and say, Lord, I'll be better if. No, no, no. I have one hope. I have faith that the blood of Jesus Christ is enough for me. Can we just take a praise break and, and give him some thanks for his blood? Come on, we need to honor the lamb. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Be praise and honor and glory and power forever. Everything the Lamb was for the Israelites, Jesus is for us. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12, Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with Jesus' own blood. He went into the holy place and once and for all time obtained eternal redemption for us. How did he do it? Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I've given it to you to make an atonement for yourselves on the altar. It's the blood that makes an atonement for one's life. Aren't you glad that the blood of Jesus was shed for you and was shed for me? But can I take this a step further today? You know, the Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 1 through 3, David said, bless the Lord, all my soul. Help me with this. The Bible school students in here, complete this bit for me. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and all that's within me. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his... Say it a bit louder. Forget not all his... What's that hissing sound at the end? That's an S. 
It doesn't say forget not his benefit. It says forget not all his benefits. If there was only one benefit, my goodness, I would be grateful forever. But it says, and forget not all his benefits. See, the Bible says this in Psalm 105, verse 37 to 38. It says, when God brought them out of Egypt, it says this, he brought them out with silver and gold, and there was not one weak or feeble among them. See, my friend, when God delivers you from your sin, he really delivers you. He delivers you from all that sin has done to you. See, sin has fruit, but righteousness has fruit also. And it's time we started expecting the fruits of righteousness rather than accepting the fruits of sin. I said this before, and I hope, I hope you're okay with me as a European kind of make an observation. But one thing that's, that's interesting about Americans is you like your guns. Just throwing that out there. You enjoy your guns, especially in Texas. It's, it's a big thing. And so what I've observed from what I can tell as a European looking in and, and, and trying to understand a little bit of the, of the Constitution A and B, the mindset behind it, it, it appears that the reason that you like and have guns is so that if you find yourself in the situation that someone is coming onto your property that's not allowed on your property, you have a means of adequately defending yourself against that person so that you can repel them from your circumstance. Is that, is that accurate? I mean, I know, I know some people use guns for other purposes, but my understanding is kind of at its core, that's the thing, is it's, it's to protect yourself. And so you fight for the right to bear arms so that if someone comes against you, you can protect, you can defend, and you can have, with respect, you can be a little old lady against a, a, a big young punk. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. So can I ask with respect, why did we fight so hard to preserve the right to defend our land and our property in the natural? But yet when Satan comes in the spirit, we lay down and play dead. Why don't we stand up and say, no, hang on a minute. Satan, the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is against you. See, Jesus said the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I'm come. (laughs) Someone knocking on you, do you hear and creeping around side and they come to rob you? Yeah, but I've got to go. No, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. Jesus said, but I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. See, the Bible says this of the blood. It says it speaks better things than that of Abel's. The blood still speaks. Why? Because it still has things to say. Aren't you glad the blood isn't dead? Aren't you glad there's still life in the blood? Aren't you glad that when Satan comes against you, the blood is still speaking over you and Abel's blood cried for judgment, but the blood of Jesus Christ for mercy. We had a situation a few years ago, Levi was, I don't know, probably six or seven and he was starting to get nightmares. I'm sure most parents can relate to the time when, and I think this is a very demonic strategy against children is to acquaint them with fear. Acquaint, is that the right word? It is right now. Acquaint them with fear. And so kids get nightmares. And with Levi, it wasn't connected to anything he'd watched because it just wasn't. We were very careful about that. And he hadn't seen anything. Nothing scary had happened to him. He just started to get nightmares. And, you know, when he would cry and, you know, he cried, dad, dad, or mom or whatever he'd cry out, we'd go in there as, you know, as fast as you can when it's three o'clock in the morning. And, and we'd give him a, a cuddle and make sure he's okay and turn the light on. And, and we started to teach Levi how to pray about this. And we taught him a very simple prayer to plead the blood of Jesus over his mind. And it, and it kind of ended with, an, and there was this cute little bit, because he's sick, so you got to make it, you know, 
in a way that he can understand. And, and, and we would teach him to plead the blood of Jesus over his you know, mind and over his thoughts. And, and then it would end with, so Satan, in the name of Jesus, I command you, get out of my head, get out of my room, get out of my house. Satan, and we just threw a little Carmen in here. Satan, bite the dust. And that was Levi's little prayer. And so I remember we'd gone a few days. He hadn't had a nightmare and, and, and woke up one night. And I mean, he was just really, really distressed. And so Angela, you know, elbowed me in the ribs. And, and I get up and I'm going down the hallway to his room. And, and I, I put my hand on the door and I'm about to go in. And I'm about to pray for him and, and take care of it for him, you know, as, as a dad would do. When I opened the door just a little bit, I heard his voice. It wasn't as strong. It wasn't as loud as mine. It was a little bit trembly. But I heard him saying, Satan, I plead the blood of Jesus over myself. And he said, he said, Satan, get out of my head. I heard his little trembling voice. Get out of my room. Get out of my house. And then Levi's little six-year-old voice said, Satan, bite the dust in Jesus' name. And I closed the door back. I never went in his room. And I went back down the hallway and Angela said, is Levi all right? And I said, Angel, he's fine. Because <laughs> I knew my son had learned how to apply the blood that still speaks over his life. See, we've got to understand something, my friend. We tend to approach God or a situation that, that comes our way. We tend to approach God with one of two things. We tend to approach him with our performance. And, and, and I've experienced this many times. I illustrate this way. I, I've experienced this as a pastor, a short pastor, Jeff. And many of you in this room would have experienced the same thing. Someone comes up and says, oh, John, would you pray for a friend of mine? Um, they've just, you know, just heard they've been diagnosed with, I don't know, cancer or, or, or something horrible has kind of come their way. Would, would you, would you pray for my friend? And, and this is, this is, you know, his name is, his name's, you know, Bob. And, and, and could you pray for him? And he's such a good man and he's been a missionary for years and, and he's just such a lovely guy. And, you know, I mean, he's never drunk or anything like that. And he's just so caring and, you know, just, just almost as if to say, you know what, let's kind of add a little bit of Bob's virtue to the prayer in the hopes that maybe God will you hear it because we're, you know, bringing up his performance. Our righteousness, my friend, is his filthy rags. You could have been the best person in Egypt that night. You could have had the nicest house. You could have mowed everybody's lawn. It meant nothing at that moment. So we oftentimes will bring up our performance if we feel there's virtue in it. Other times we're like, oh Lord, please don't look back. (laughs) The other thing we tend to bring up is our promises. I'm talking about when a bad report comes your way. When when Satan is coming onto your property to invade and he's coming illegally. We tend to bring up our promises. Lord, if you, if you heal me, then I'll do. Lord, if you bless me, then, then, then Lord, I promise I'll start tithing if you bless me, Lord. I, I mean, I'll really tithe 11%, not just 10, Lord. I'm, I mean, I'm going big 11%. Or Lord, if you bless me, I'm going to start going, I'm going to start witnessing. Lord, if you, if you sort this situation out, it'll be a testimony to my family and I'll tell them all about you. And we come with our promises. But again, relating it as a parent, have you ever had maybe your 10-year-old comes to you roundabout now is when the Christmas present negotiating starts, in our home anyway. And so picture for a moment that your 10-year-old comes and says, Dad, please, Dad, please, can I have an iPhone 11 for Christmas this year? Dad, it's only a thousand pounds. Dad, that's all it is. I mean, you know, just 
36 easy payments of 150 pounds and it's done, Dad. So, Dad, please, can you? And Dad, because all my friends have an iPhone. And, and so, Dad, and, and Dad, here's the deal. If you, if you buy me an iPhone, Dad, I promise I will walk the dog every day. I'll feed it every day. In fact, Dad, you will never have to ask me to tidy my room again. No underpants lying around the house ever again. Dad, I will brush my teeth every morning and every night. You'll never have to ask me again. Dad, I promise if you buy me this iPhone, I'll do my homework every single day. Do you know what those promises mean for my 10-year-old? Nothing. Why? Because he means well, but he is completely powerless to fulfill his own promises. My friend, when you approach God, don't approach him with your performance. Don't approach him with your promises. There's only one thing that matters. There's only one thing that has value and currency enough to save you. There's only one thing that you can apply to the doorposts of your life. And I'm telling you, my friend, it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed once and for all for you and for me. We got to understand there is as much power in the blood today as there was 2,000 years ago. It still speaks. So God's desire is not to save you from your sin, but leave you in your bondage. To commute your sentence, but leave you in prison. God's your father. And there's not a father in this room, a healthy father, I should say, in this room that wouldn't want the very best. And to take care of every need they possibly could of their child. We don't want to see our children struggling or sick or experiencing mental health problems. We would do anything we could. And God feels that way about you. In the words of the song, he's a good, good father. That's who he is. And God not only wants to lift your sin from off of your shoulders, he wants to rip everything it has done to you from off of your life. Can I read you this like I wrote it? And I'll close with this. Let me, let me say that bit again, because I like it. I even put it in orange, so it must be good. Everyone look at me, say, sock it to me, baby. Okay. God not only wants to lift your sin from off of your shoulders. He wants to rip everything it has done to you from off of your life. He hates it. He loves you. He hates sin. He loves you. He destroys the works of the enemy. But the Bible says a bruised reed, he won't break. And a tender flame, he won't extinguish. Jesus said of you and me, he said, I'm going to my father's house. I'm preparing a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. But he said of Satan, he said, he fled from heaven like lightning. My dad, my father, my Abba is frightening to those who don't know him. But he hides me into the shadow of his wings and under his feathers. I confidently trust. My friend, I believe we need to go from a theology of the blood to a working, living, vibrant, active, daily, hourly relationship with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not enough to mentally ascend to the power of that lamb or to the theory that this could help you. You had to apply the blood to the doorpost of your life and, he said, and stay in the house. I wonder if there are some people in this room that you absolutely applied the blood to your life, but you haven't stayed in the house. It's time to come back home, my friend. 
The story of the prodigal son, prodigal father is this. Every day the dad was looking saying, is, is my son coming home today? I mean, he was ready. He was absolutely ready. I believe even today, right now, God is looking saying, you know who you are. He's looking saying, are you coming home today? Are you coming back under the blood today? Are you going to get yourself back to that place? Are you going to surrender to the blood again? Are you going to let me do for you what I've done for others? My friend, come running to the blood. Can anyone say, Jesus, thank you for your blood? Let's take a quick praise break. Come on, just thank him a moment for his blood. Come on, your praise needs a top up. Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you for your blood. Your soul saving blood. How does that hymn go? I, I need no other argument. I have no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My friend, what I taught my six-year-old son, we need to remind ourselves that when Satan comes knocking at your door and his fear comes your way, don't start Googling. Come on. It doesn't matter what you have. If you Google it, you'll be dead of it in five minutes. I mean, don't go there. (laughs) Whose report are you going to believe? I believe the blood of the Lamb is enough for me. And when something comes my way or my son's way or my wife, I grab them so tight and I say, Lord, I believe your blood is enough to save me. It's enough to save them. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to ask you a question in this place. You know where I'm going to go with this, but my goodness, it would be criminal not to go there right now. Because there might be someone in this room and you have never applied the blood of Jesus Christ to yourself. Here's the thing. The way it was applied under the Passover was this. The lamb had to die. But then also you had to take a hyssop branch and, and, and put it to the doorpost of your house. If the lamb only died, but you never applied it, then you still weren't saved. The way that you and I apply the blood, because there is no, the Bible says there's no more offering for sin, not, not with bulls and goats. Jesus went in once with his own blood and attained eternal redemption. So how then do I apply the blood to my life? Because I don't have a hyssop branch and there's no physical blood here. The Bible says we apply it by faith. If I believe in my heart in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, I believe the lamb died, rose again. Yes, that's another sermon, but the lamb died. But not only must I believe in my heart that Jesus died, I must confess with my mouth that Jesus is my Lord, that he's my savior, that I apply your blood to my life. I'm not so proud as to say my performance will save me. I'm not so arrogant to think my promises and what I'm going to do next will have me any standing. Jesus, I believe that what you did for me is enough. And I confess you as my Lord and as my savior. And when I stand before God, my only hope will be that Jesus died and rescued me. We call ourselves Christians that believe this way because we're honored to take on his name. Let me ask you in this place, how many of you are are honored to call yourself a Christian? Come on, we're not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question today, and it's this. If you've never applied the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to your life, in fact, would you do something for me, please? Would you close your eyes and bow your head? 
And the reason I ask you that is not because we're about to do something in secret. In fact, a moment, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand high and stand up. We're not ashamed. I just want you to be concentrating on what I'm saying here for the next moment or two. If you're in this room and you say, John, if the angel of death, as it were, were to pass over my life, I don't know if I'd be spared. My friend, that's a scary place to be. But the Bible speaks of an assurance of our salvation. I'm not looking forward to dying because it might hurt, but I can genuinely say I don't fear death. Because I know to be absent with the body, from the body is to be present with the Lord because of Jesus. If you're in here and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, yes, the lamb has died 2,000 years ago on that cross. But have you applied the blood by faith to your life? Again, how? You believe in your heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with your mouth, you confess him as Savior. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. But I also want to speak to the prodigals in this room. The people that have encountered the blood, but have come out from under that house, so to speak. My friend, come home. I don't have any fancy words to say. I can only put it so simply. Come home. Come home. If that's you, you know I'm talking to you because your heart is pounding in your chest right now. And the Holy Spirit is saying, come home. So I'm going to ask you in just a moment to raise your hand in this place. This morning, I reckon about, I don't know, at least 15 people, at least so far today, have raised their hand to say, I want to be born again or or, or come home. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. So if you're in here this morning or this afternoon, you say, John, I want to ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart. I want to apply the blood of Jesus to my life by faith. Or you say, I want to come home. And if that's you, would you unashamedly and boldly, would you raise your hand high so I can see who you are? And I want to pray for you. Someone over here? Awesome. Man, I'm glad. Boy, am I glad. Is there anyone else? You say, John, that's me today. I want to join the others in the other services. I I want to come home. I want to come to Jesus. One more time, that's you, raise your hand high. Anyone else? Okay, ma'am, I ask this. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front, but would you please stand up right where you are? Come on, let's put our hands together and celebrate with her unashamedly. Church, let's all stand together. We're a family. The Bible says we rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. So can we pray together with our sister? I'm going to ask everybody, place one hand on your heart. Raise your other hand to heaven. That's where your help comes from. And turning point family, let's pray together. Say, dear heavenly father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for shedding your blood for me. I confess you as my savior. I place no confidence in myself. I see no virtue in myself. My trust is in you. Please forgive me of my sins. Wash me in your blood. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And make me born again. I thank you that when I die, heaven will be my home. But while I live, I will live my life for you. Please forgive me. I've loved myself. I've lived for pleasure 
more than I've lived for you. But today, you've captured my heart again. And I'm glad. And I come home. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for receiving me. I love you today. And I will love you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate one more time together. Wasn't that a great word? Man, that was a great word on the blood of Jesus. Amen.